for being here this evening um, and this is my first interview I must say it's easier giving interview than interviewing <laughs> it's challenging um, Sadhguru thank you so much for giving me this opportunity and thanks to all the volunteers who've worked so hard um, so my first question to you is that when I first heard about you many years ago When I first heard about you many years ago, I, I rolled my eyes and, and I muttered something about uh, guru types. <laughs> and until a few, few uh, uh, months ago, when my sister gave me your book, Inner Engineering, which happens to be New York Times bestseller, um, it changed my perspective. And when I was working on this interaction, I came across a few interviews of yours, one of them being with a senior writer from my field. And, and he was vehemently attacking you. Like he was try, trying to frame you for being a like fake. And he himself is accused of plagiarism. In, so, so my question is that why does a person uh, connected to spirituality on its path is everyone feels uh, entitled to judge them. And honestly, if it wasn't New York Times bestseller book, I would have not read it. What, what is it about the West, <laughs> this West stamp that we can't do without it? I mean, there are so many books, and if, unless Americans don't approve of it, it just doesn't make sense. Why is that? This is multiple questions. About, uh, about people's resistance uh, to someone like me. When I say someone like me, someone who has not messed with himself, okay? <laughs> he didn't cut his hair, he didn't do anything, he's simply the way nature intended him to be. That's all the problem they have with me. You… they think you have to belong somewhere. You have to be this religion or that religion or this party or that party, you got to be something. Today if you look at the world, now that you mentioned America, and it's also beginning to happen in our country in a big time, big way, in, in imitation of United States, I would say. See, in United States, uh, you ask, talk to anybody, they'll say, I'm a Democrat. 
or I'm a Republican. What this essentially means is, you have no clue what is democracy. If you say I'm this and my father also was this and my grandfather also was a Republican, so this, this, this I am. What this means is, you have become a tribe. You, you've become a? A tribe, you know. Mm -hmm. Once you become a tribe, a tribal war is inevitable. It's going to happen somewhere. Democracy means every time you must see these five years or four years, whatever the term, how they have functioned and individually you make a choice whom to vote for. You're already committed to vote to a particular party no matter what. This means you become a tribe, you've gone back to feudalistic way of living, but you're talking democratic language. So this has happened in a huge way in United States. So uh, these jokes keep going around. Someone trying to convert a Republican into a Democrat. So they came and asked, why don't you vote for Democrats, you see what kind of president you got. So he said, no, I'm a Democrat, my father, I'm, I'm a Republican, my father was a Republican and my grandfather was a Republican, so I'm a Republican, that's it. So this guy asked, suppose your grandfather was a jackass <laughs> and your father was a jackass, what would you be? He said, of course a Democrat. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, we are taking things from there all the time and in India also slowly we are moving in that direction unfortunately. About New York Times, <laughs> New York Times, <laughs> a lot of things you could say about New York Times but I think the, their president is speaking as to what is New York Times, I don't have to say a thing. <laughs> uh, we still have not got out of the Firang syndrome. You know what's Firang? I know. Yeah. <laughs> of course. So we've still not gotten out of that Firang syndrome. Uh, it has to come from there. Today, why do you think so many people are talking about yoga? The yoga they're talking about in India is, is largely a rebound from the American coast. They're not talking about the yoga that is here. This is the source of yoga. And uh, if you People's understanding of yoga is… Uh, yes, Sadhguru, that brings to me a question about um, our, our roots ingrained in yoga and spirituality. But where has it got us as a nation, as a country, as a continent? What has it given us? Like, um, I know what you say about karma bondage and I, I will quote you. <laughs> no, I'll quote you. If somebody, he says about karma, breaking karma bondage, that if somebody breaks your leg, don't go after that person's leg. Fix your leg and go your way. I understand that sounds fantastic, but if somebody breaks your leg and you go your way, somebody again comes, break your leg, what do you do? And then Why others do you think see people are so much interested in your legs? <laughs> no, no Sadhguru, you're, you're, you're literally taking it, but, but tell, tell me, don't we have a history of thousand years of yes. invasion after invasion and didn't we grew up hearing this from our mothers that, oh, if somebody rubs you wrong way, the only thing that they say is, oh, Bhagwan dekh raha hai. What? <laughs> so, say this, sir. This I mean, we as a land, I mean, I, 
I don't know much about history, but this much I know that we as a land, we have not, and thanks to our spiritual education, that we have never gone to invade a continent or gone to, for a conquest like that. But, but what, where has it got us? Where has it landed us? So why not imitate West? Uh, you must give me a few minutes. <laughs> you, you raised a whole lot of things about history. So what has uh, the spiritual process given us as a land, as a nation, as a culture? You must understand this. This is a… let's understand this very clearly. Here we always focused on individual development because without creating great human beings, there is no great nation, there is no great culture, there is no great world. World, nation, society, these are just words. It's just you and me. What kind of people we are, that's the kind of society, that's the kind of nation, that's the kind of world we will live in. So we always focused on individual development. In this we produce stellar human beings, absolutely fantastic human beings for thousands of years who created a fantastic culture. And let me remind you, our safety was our geographical features, the Himalayan region, the Himalayan ranges and the Indian Ocean which was called as Indusagara at one time. So this he and Hindu together we made it Hindu. So you must understand it is a geographical entity. We revered the mountains and the ocean because we knew our safety, our well-being and our cultural flourish and our uh, economic uh, prosperity of the time, everything depended on these two barriers which stopped people from invading and doing things. But then people found ways to cross the mountains and come across and come through the oceans, everything happened. So our problem was just this. We focused on human genius all the time, but we lacked organization. The West always focused on organization, but they did not focus on individual genius. For both there is a price. So now we have come to a place where we cannot ignore individual genius, we have to focus on that. At the same time, we need to learn to organize, that's what we are struggling at right now, that we want to organize. Can I ask? So, uh, Sadhguru, um, uh, talking about spirituality, and like I, like I questioned that how practical is it in today's world where, whereas like the whole philosophy of spirituality or what… No, spirituality is not a philosophy. I know, it's, it's a technique, it's a practice no, which no, I also no, do, no. it's yoga. No, no. <laughs> it's yoga, it's the, the ultimate union. Okay, so I know yoga is the ultimate union and everything that we do as yoga is supposed to make us inclusive. Inclusive mm. of, of everything. So let me finish, okay? <laughs> so, so it is supposed to make us inclusive of our environment and then further expanding that our country, our countrymen and then the planet and then the cosmos and that it goes on. But my question is, and I, I want to present an example. I was in London and you know what, it, what happens to when you are in a beautiful city with great infrastructure, you're with a couple of friends and your Indian friends, they're always cursing India. You know, oh, this is so great, where, where we live is a piece of garbage. You know, and on all that, I felt so overwhelmed. I couldn't wait to get to my room and, and when I got there, 
I was crying. I found myself crying and I was muttering something of the effect that, that you know, I mean, what do you expect and, you know, why don't they have sympathy for, for, for their own land and all of that. And then I realized that identifying like that with your country, today I'm crying, tomorrow I might just punch somebody and everybody will behave in their own way. So this kind of identification with your environment, with your country, with your religion, with your family is, is the root cause of all atrocities. So isn't that kind of, is, isn't it dangerous? Now don't tell me, be inclusive, but still not be inclusive. Don't try to answer me. No. <laughs> I am not buying that answer. How can you be inclusive and yet not be inclusive? If you're inclusive, you're inclusive. Or you don't be inclusive. Well, uh the city that you're appreciating of its infrastructure and its wealth and well-being for two centuries was largely built on stolen money from this country. Well, I've, we should not… Uh, we should not resent our history and develop uh, animosity towards somebody. But at the same time, it's stupid to forget everything and go on as if nothing happened. That'll be absolutely stupid. That's a problem with us. One thing is, see in this country, what has happened in those two hundred years? Don't go back thousand years, there have been atrocities, that's a different matter. Even if you go back this two hundred years, because we're talking about London, what's happened in this country is not a small thing. Six million Jews died. They write and write and write about it. They make movies about it. Nobody is supposed to forget about it in the world. Everybody is reminded every day how this atrocity happened to them. But we, you know, the Bengal famine killed over three and a half million people in a matter of three months because they took away all the food for the World War II effort. And this is not one. The governor uh, in 1860 writes, the fields of India are bleached by the bones of the hand weavers because they destroyed the handloom industry. Yesterday was handloom day or something. Yes? From 1800 to 1860, in sixty years' time, an industry which has lasted for ten thousand years, they destroyed and left millions of people to die. It's recorded in British history and uh, you know in what they have written, not what we have written because we write nothing. If we get our breakfast tomorrow, we're just happy. There's a big problem in India because we don't have a sense of history. A history or revenge? No, no. Revenge is not needed because revenge will again waste your energy and you, you know, your future is wasted if you go into revenge. Sadhguru, this is what I don't get. Like no, let me, let me finish this. About what is this spiritual process given to us, okay? The question is why can't we be like them and be successful? See, why we are like this is because we have realized in a very profound way. Most Indian people may not know this consciously, but they know this by life. They may not be articulating this in their mind. Somewhere they know that their well-being is essentially coming from within. Outside arrangements we can make as we want, but me being joyful, peaceful, loving, blissful is most important. Well, that's why I said individually we did great, Organization also we had great stuff till outside people came who had 
no concern about anything that you think and feel and experience, everything was brutally uprooted, all right? I'll just tell you an example. For example, you've come to the yoga center, that region, there's one police station with about twelve to fourteen policemen. Uh, about four are night duty, that means about eight or nine. Two, three will be always on leave. <laughs> I'm saying literally there's no law, it's a quarter million people. There's literally no law at all, but still there's no crime. This is spiritual process, I'm telling you. You take away police in New York City, you take away the law enforcement in New York City or London that you're talking about, just see what will happen in three hours' time. Okay, so Sadhguru, this… You like, we need organization right now. <laughs> to succeed as a nation, we need organization. Yeah, but the way society has also been handling things is, is not great. It's, it's not really the, the best thing. It's not the… we can't rely on a system like that. You mm. mean like we are largely being uh, organized by society, but that's not the most appropriate way. I, I mean, authority isn't either, but aren't they, they, there is at least a set of rules there. With society, they're really… I mean, more money you've got, you can literally get away with anything. So that's not the best way to go forward. What do you have to say about that? Sure. You're saying in India? In India, yes. Yeah. See, uh, we need to understand this. When the British left this country, the average life expectancy in this country was twenty-eight years, okay? The illiteracy was ninety-three percent. There was literally no industry, no infrastructure of any kind. People, some idiots talk about, oh, they built railways. They built railways because they want to move their troops and the goods out of the country. So railways were there, but what were they transporting on the railways? So there was literally no economic infrastructure. Administrative infrastructure in the form of civil services was there, that was to keep control. You just see what they were called, what were the local administrators called? They were called collectors. Even today, unfortunately, we're retaining the same appellation. Collector means what? They were just tax collectors. In many provinces, the taxes on the agricultural produce was hundred percent. Can you beat that? Oh. One hundred percent tax on everything that you grow. So this was a totally, absolutely demoralizing occupation that happened for over two hundred years. And we are recovering from that. It's not a small thing. I agree. We've I been agree. just beaten down. No education, no nourishment, no economic infrastructure, all industry destroyed. We were just a resource for their industry. When this was done, systematically we've been exploited. Only problem with us was we didn't have an organization to fight them. We had small, small kingdoms which they played very well and they managed. This is a historical blunder on our side. There's no point cursing them. They did what was best for them. We could not do what was best for us. It's time for us to do what is best for us now. But, but Sadhguru, tell me, like we have a, such a diversity in our country, you know, whether they are different um, languages, traditions, religions and food and all sort of diversity. Definitely which is, food. Which is which is beautiful, like what you say about uh, difference and discrimination. Differences are beautiful, you know, like how like a man is different than a woman and, and flowers are different and, you know, so on and so forth. So there is, there is difference which is beautiful, but 
But don't you think there should be one spirit? There should be something that could bind us together. I don't see anything because the only common factor between us is definitely the motherland. Because you're from south and I'm from north and if we didn't have uh, the, the history of slavery to connect us, we would never be… we would never know what we are talking about. We are very balanced because we are from the sea level. <laughs> yeah, he, he, his nickname for me is mental. He calls me cuckoo. Uh, yeah, so, so, uh, so Sadhguru, don't you think we should have something that, that can bind us together? Uh, don't you think it's, it's so easy to play us as people, as, as a nation? And, and that spirit of, like I can think of only one thing that can bind us together is probably nationalism, which is the most uh, infamous word in today's time. Uh, so, so what is it? What can bind us together? See, this diversity that you're talking about, as uh, all of us know, there is no other nation which has this complexity of diversity. We have thirteen hundred spoken languages in this country and a thousand different ways to cook and a thousand different ways to dress and every fifty kilometers you drive, people look different, dress different, speak different, eat different, everything different. So, this is what also helped us to survive, you must understand this. See, just look at this, wherever the English went, for example, or before that the Islamic invasions, wherever they went, they made sure the entire population was religiously at least compromised. Just look at North America, South America, Africa, Australia, wherever they went, they were absolutely nearly hundred percent successful. This is one country they couldn't figure out <laughs> because <laughs> they don't know where the head is. So because we are like a… we are an organism with, uh, you know, million heads, nobody knows which head to cut. <laughs> so this is… don't complain about this because this has also been our survival. After nearly thousand years of occupation, we've still retained our culture, maybe little bit of distortions here, there, but we've still retained it simply because nobody knows where the head is, otherwise they would have chopped off the head. So where's the head? Huh? No, that is a whole thing. You tell me, this whole thing now is leading to something else. Right now there's a huge cosmos. In this, we are a tiny little planet, yes? Yeah. Now the foolish way of looking at life is that there is a head for this cosmos. There is one God sitting up there and ruling this cosmos. This is a childish way of looking at life. But that's not the way we looked at it here. We saw every… Every organism, every life, every atom has its own head and it's running by itself. It is complete by itself, it runs by itself. This is why in this culture self-realization became most important because if you realize the nature of this, in a way you have realized the nature of the entire cosmos because this idea that there is some central point in the cosmos and there is one head sitting up there is a stupid idea. Modern science is proving that to you beyond any doubt. But we have said this for thousands of years because we saw this is a headless cosmos. Headless is not a negative thing. I know the Western uh, saying headless chicken is supposed to be bad. Yes, a chicken should have a head. <laughs> it should also have two legs. <laughs> it's important. But this is a headless cosmos. That is why it's so beautiful. So we are just an imitation of the cosmic nature of existence. We are also always headless. But 
This is why individual genius becomes of paramount importance because each human being functioning at their peak is important to create a society which is as colorful and as diverse as possible. So what held us together? See, because you must understand this, there was a time when there were over two hundred political entities in the form of kingdoms and empires and whatever. Many times people tried to, uh, you know, unite them into one occupation, but later on it again broke up. Many times over two hundred political establishments. In spite of that, in this nation people felt this is one nation, we call this Bharat and people from outside, they also thought this is one nation, though there were two hundred kings ruling the place. What is it? What do you think made them think this is one nation? Even today, if you go to Syria, Lebanon, you will see thousands of uh, women especially named as Hind. They're named as India. Their understanding is Hind means India and they have taken the name Hind. Even today, thousands of women have this name that they are Hind. So, because forever we've been known as one nation for more than ten, fifteen thousand years, this is because everywhere they went, they saw a nation means was always built on the sameness of language, sameness of religion, sameness of, uh, you know, ethnicity. But they found this land, there is no sameness anywhere. If you look from your neighbor to you, you are a different person. Absolutely. You cook differently, they cook differently, you speak one language, they speak another language. But they called this one nation because this was the only nation which was a land of seekers, not a land of believers. This is why we always identified as seekers. We are seekers of truth and liberation. Our highest value is not God, God means head. Our highest value has never been God. Our highest value has always been mukti and moksha because this means liberation and freedom. Freedom has been our highest value. Now the so-called liberals are talking about freedom fresh as if they're talking about it for the first time. We've always held as the most sacred thing in our life is ultimate liberation of the human being. Not going to heaven, not the pleasures of heaven have never been eulogized in this culture. So our Togetherness came because we were seekers. When we were seekers, the important thing about seeking is this. When you are believers, you will always get together. Because without getting together, see if you just believe something all by yourself, you look stupid. You need thousand people around you who believe the same thing, otherwise you'll feel foolish. But when you become a seeker, you always want to be alone because seeking is internal and individual. So because we were always individuals, we were never an organized group, we never had a situation where somebody could give us one rip-rap speech and get us all moving. There's never been like that, still we are like that, I'm glad we are like that, but we need some organization to function in the modern world for sure. No, that's a contradiction. It is not. Well, okay, Sadhguru, I, f I personally feel that this whole uh, dichotomy of what's happening in today's society and today's world that we are individuals and we need to be organized as well. But we, what we face on every days, um, on daily basis, it's, it's something completely different, which I mean, I, I'll tell you where for me, like it, it's very uh, conflicting because like I'm working on a martyr's uh, biopic where there is a scene uh, that my, the protagonist, Lakshmi Bai, she goes and she saves a calf. 
So my crew had a huge discussion. We halted the shoot and we were like, she can't save a calf. It has to be a lamb because we don't want to look like cow savers. Uh, so, so my point is that such a, when such a prejudice strikes, as, as a person, as a person, you feel very protective of, of who you are and, and what, your, what your values are. And you want to save all the animals. Why just cow? But you definitely want to save the cow for sure. Because, you know, the prejudice is, is really agonizing. But a cow lynching, takes a lynching for cow takes place and you look like an idiot. And then you jump to the other side, which, is, which has been always criticizing and never wanting to be protecting cows. And you're like, these people look sensible, and these are so-called liberals. And not, now liberals, by definition, because I have learned English now just recently, so I have to access to dictionary for everything. So, so by the literal meaning, dictionary meaning of liberal is, is people who have uh, acceptance for people, opinions, thoughts. No, 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 no. <laughs> no. That's what I'm saying. Now, no, let me finish this question. So, so these liberals, they will not take you in their group unless you hate the same people as they do. So, so like one thing, it's fine if this is for the betterment of the country, you don't mind hating on BJP. You don't mind uh, believing that everything that has been done by, you know, like Amit, literally Amit Shah is practically doing, that's fine. But, but what is? <laughs> no, but what I don't get is, what I don't get is, this I get, I, what I don't get is, what is their agenda and plan of action for bringing the, this, this country out of the pit? What is that they're doing? So, when, when a war breaks, liberals are the first one to say, for my, my industry, people say, why should we be bothered with war? We are artists. To demotivating an army man who's, who's protecting the borders for you. A rape takes place in Kashmir and they say, Hindustan raped our daughter. To be pointing fingers at each other when the, in, and when the country is so vulnerable. And trying to break a civil war? Is that what liberals do? And you're like, wait a minute, the most sensible things seems like to be a, a skeptic. But a skeptic is nothing but a space cadet. Doesn't know where he's going. So right now, we need a definite direction to go into. We cannot be stuck in the unfortunate loop of to be or not to be, to be or not to be. So what to do? Wow. Well, uh, for a long time, from that city that you were talking about, they always thought asking this question, to be or not to be, is the most intelligent thing to do. <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, because they rarely came to existential questions. Existential questions is a daily affair for us in this country, but they, they rarely came to it. So that is how rudimentary ways they addressed it. They thought it's a most intelligent question to ask to be or not to be. I think it's the dumbest question to ask because you have not tasted life. When you are really blissed out and ecstatic, do you ask to be or not to be? In some way you're frustrated, some way you're burdened, so you're asking to be or not to be. Leave that aside, that's the thing. First of all, today in the world, people who claim to be liberals are actually fanatics. If you do not agree with them, uh, they'll finish you <laughs> in some way. <laughs> so, about Jansi Rani saving the cow, 
<laughs> well, she's a woman who stands out in our history and uh, you're just fortunate that you… But she did save a cow. <laughs> I'm like, listen guys, rather than fighting, why don't you access the facts? They're like, they, she did save a cow, but we should not See, show it as a cow. See, the thing is, uh, we don't know who wrote the story. She didn't save one cow. Cows would have always been saved because in this country, which is a pastoral country, cow and uh, cattle was the wealth of this nation. If you look back at Mahabharat, they're not talking about land as wealth. They're always talking about cattle as wealth because land was there plenty. Cattle, how many thousand head of cattle did you own, decided how rich you are. So if somebody stole a cow, they caught you and beat you up. All right? Yeah, that's how it is in back home as well. Like I come from a village and sometimes so the only thing that I'm they saying have uh, this, this whole lynching debate that's going on in the country, these people who are talking about it have not seen India. They've not seen India at all. They're just living in cities and television studios and endlessly talking about these things. Let me say this clearly, I've always been connected with rural life. I have… in my life, I have witnessed three lynchings, okay, I've witnessed. In two, they were killed, in the other one, nearly killed. For what? One was because they believed this man could be stealing their children. People lynch, you know, even recently it happened. If you steal their children, if you steal their cows, if you steal… if you cut a tree and take it from his farm, these are three things for lynchings will happen. I have seen all three varieties. I try to get into it and stop this. They said, you don't get into it and push me aside. I knew the local sub-inspector who was, you know, who was a senior in my college. So I went to him and said, you need to do something. These guys just killed the guy and buried him right there in the village. The entire village knows and nothing. He said, you don't get into this. I said, why? He said, see, this is how it is. They have their own law. I… I am a police officer, I enforce a certain aspect of the law. Rest of the law is handled by them in their own terms. So actually, this is a… a crowd because there is no actual total law enforcement in the country. Slowly it is coming but it has not been there for a long time. People manage their own things. But Sadhguru, there's a lot of other atrocities like for example… No, there are, there are. But let me finish this because this is a big issue in the country today. So I'm not trying to approve this is the way to do it. All I'm saying is when mob tries to uh, enforce justice, their idea of justice, this is how it gets enforced. Unfortunately, that's where we are. We need to understand that's where we are. If we want to change this, there are many things we need to do. Not going on pointing about somebody saved a cow. Well, when people thought they're child lifters and they killed them, why did you start, start, a, start a debate about that? Because you know if you start a debate about don't save your children, then you will get it back, <laughs> all right? Cow is an easy thing right now to go at. So this is not about cows, this is not about whatever is precious to them. If they believe somebody is taking it, they can't call the police. Because if they call the police, they'll come after twenty-four hours. And if they come, there are so many issues. It doesn't directly get settled. So people have their own way of settling. Unfortunately, it is going into a place where people are being killed on the street. It should not go there means law enforcement needs to come on all levels of life. We have not… law enforcement has not reached the entire geography of this nation. Let's get to that. We need to do that. 
Sadhguru, like uh, I am a Rajput myself, and when the whole uh, Padmavat episode took place, and you know, cutting one of my contemporaries' nose, I was embarrassed. I'm like, and also like when the rape took place in Kashmir, to be pointing out things like, um, like you know. This wouldn't disturb anybody if it was Hollywood, because no, a lot of them have cut their noses off and replaced. <laughs> The criminals are not yes, religions. Know. Criminals cannot be associated with religion. That is just simply trying to instigate. Um, I don't think instigate. that was about religion at all. Anyway, that whole movement was not against religion. There are many political aspects to it. When this was happening in full flare, the Padmavat issue, and person is here. Uh, <laughs> so uh, when they were burning buses, uh, then I called somebody a very responsible person in the country and said, what is this? How are we allowing this to happen? If you don't like a movie, don't go. I don't go to the movies. <laughs> so, if you don't like it, you don't go. Why do you have to burn a bus that people have to use tomorrow morning? <laughs> they said, Sadhguru, they have all dressed up on hundred women like brides and they're sitting ready, ready to burn by themselves, volunteers to burn. Today, if we handle them rough on the street, Tomorrow if these hundred women, even if ten of them burn themselves, it will become an international issue. So let the buses burn for one or two days, then we will deal with it. I thought this is a strange kind of wisdom, but it is wisdom. Okay. So we need to understand this, we need to understand this instead of giving commentaries because somebody went to Western universities and came back giving that kind of commentary in this country without understanding the realities. No, there are unfortunate realities of various kinds of divisions that people are trying to play up. When they don't get any voice to say something, they will gather one caste together, they will gather their own community together, together or gather one group of language people together or religion together and do something on the street to get attention. The way, unfortunate way that this become a culture to get attention is burn the bus. <laughs> People tomorrow morning they'll have to walk to their pla place of work, but burn the bus and get attention. In every other country if they want to protest, they burn old tires. I think our people don't know how to take the tires out, so they're burning the entire bus. <laughs> it's a mechanical lapse. Sadhguru, Indians are doing so well, whether it's the CEOs of Google, Microsoft, MasterCard, Nokia, you know the list goes on. All the chief executive, I have a whole list of no, those. Let's see the outcome. Yeah, so, so Indians are doing so well all over the world, but India is not doing well. Uh, Why is that? Everybody in the world thinks India is doing very well, but here there is a commentary that India is not doing well. When I look at you, I say you're doing well. When I look at these people, I say they're doing well. But yes, it is a fact forty percent of our population is still malnourished, unfortunately. This is because our focus in these last seventy years has largely been to industrialize, build cities and stuff. We have not focused sufficiently on our agriculture, enhancing rural life. Right now, we are pitching very hard to do this and I think in many ways, the governments of today, particularly the central government, is very focused on seeing this happen. 
Well, it's not as easy as said, there are many, many challenges, but a clear plan at least being is being evolved how to make agriculture lucrative, how to make rural living in a village worthwhile, that even if you want to see a cinema, you don't have to go to the city, that living in a village should be worthwhile. So these things are being planned, in some states it's going very fast, in some states it's going slow, but right now the focus is how to make it worthwhile living in a village, that you don't have to… If you want to have a good life, you have to go to the city. This is how it's been in the last fifty, sixty years. This the government is trying to change, all of us should support this moment towards developing villages. If we need to forego a few things in the cities for some time, we should and allow the villages to develop. Otherwise, you'll have all of them coming to the city, that's the biggest problem in Mumbai. People are just coming in without any infrastructure, they don't know where to be. In most inhuman ways, unfortunately, they're existing because they just come in without any basis. And the life that they go through, the exploitations that they go through, what happens to them is, uh, is an untold story. But Sadhguru, don't you think population explosion, like the chi China was also facing a similar problem few years ago and they have tackled it so well and with us… Don't say well, they've handled it <laughs> because you should know in China… No, I don't know. They were burying live children. Second child born, live children were just being buried in the hospitals. When that video was taken and it went viral around, around the world, they changed that to giving iodine injections to the brains of healthy children, second child. So you don't have the stomach nor the heart to do anything like that, so don't compare to China. But do we have to control our population? Absolutely. So There's at least there should no be tax on the third child? Hmm? <laughs> what is that? At least there should be tax on the third child because they're using roads and river water which you're trying to save and the, and the oxygen from the trees which I am plant, planting with many other people. So at least third, two children should be okay, but third one should I have… I don't say that because I'm, I'm the fourth among the siblings <laughs> I have a big tax sitting on my <laughs> Definitely some incentives have to be done. Right now when I spoke about this a year ago, a lot of controversy in the south. We've been trying to bring this in the villages. A year… a voluntary year of no conception. All we need to do is… see, because our life expectancy has improved, it's not because an explosion of reproduction has happened. No, that's not true. It is our life expectancy is improving. That means we took our death into our hands, but we are not taking the birth into our hands. We have… see, just about fifty years ago, an average time when the first child happened to a young woman in this country was somewhere around sixteen or seventeen years of age. It's moved to about twenty-four right now, but we need to push this to thirty-five. <laughs> Sadhguru, uh, these days the, the common discussion which is going on is again about the, the refugees and we being celebrities, we get these questions asked and this is the most conflicting uh, question ever because as, as a nation, any, like, you know, being a part of this country and knowing that so many of us don't even have access to food, education, electricity, absorbing more people into our population clearly isn't a good idea, but denying those people is, seems even worse. So what should be, like again, where does spirituality comes here? Like what part does it play? And what happens to inclusiveness when such a thing happens? 
You're picking on my yoga definition. No! <laughs> no, like I, I clearly know that yeah. this is the worst thing to do right now because they are coming in millions and millions and millions where our own are starving. So it's like saying that I let my own child die but I save the neighbor's one. So, I mean, what sort of if negotiation that, is that? If that was the intent, I would bow down to such people. I will let my own child but I'll save your child. I will bow down to such people if they exist. But that's not the thing. We are trying to project our inefficiency as compassion. I don't like that. We don't know how to man our borders, but we are talking about compassion, that's not the truth. We're just projecting our inefficiency as some kind of a great value. There's no value to that. So, talking about influx of people from outside, see when somebody comes to the nation's door because they are violently persecuted somewhere, we should treat it differently. After all, they are human beings. But for economic well-being, people are daily porous borders, people are going across here and there. We need to do something about it. If we don't do anything about it, we will be stupid because you cannot run a nation without knowing how many people and who is in this country. We, we cannot run a country like that. First of all, we must understand, I am not for nationhood if you ask me. It would be fantastic if we live as one world, but we are nowhere near that possibility, okay? We are nowhere near that possibility. Right now, the best way to address humanity and the largest segment of humanity that you can address right now is a nation. So nationhood is right now very important and a practical solution for humanity as a whole. In the making of a nation, one of the most basic ingredients is the sovereignty or the physical, geographical peace that we call a nation. In this there may be culture, there may be language, there may be religion, there may be everything else, economics, everything is secondary. First and foremost thing is, there is a piece of geography which we call as a nation. Now if you're talking about inclusion, I mean you're right now talking about India, Bangladesh, well you know we became two nations or three nations. <laughs> we became two nations in 1947, we became three nations in uh, uh, 71. So some people think we can make ourselves into another four or five or six. No, I think we must stop this nonsense now because people who are talking this do not know the suffering that happened in 1947-48. There are still… I, I'm sure in this hall there are many people who parents walked across the border and came at one time. What they have gone through, what they have left behind, the sufferings and the pain and the nearly 600,000 people who died and about two to three million people who migrated from this side and that side. In both sides of the border, after seventy years, second generation of people still are not settled. Many of them are still living like refugees. When this has happened, talking about one more partition is a stupid and the dumbest thing to do. We, sh we should not talk about that. Now about the porous borders between India and Bangladesh, well, we have largely sealed India and Pakistan, isn't it? Why? Because they're coming across with guns. Here they're just coming for livelihood. So if they come, we can always… if people come to work, we can give them work permits. They can work here and go back when they want to. As people from Bengal are coming to South India, working for two, three months and going back, similarly they can also come and go, you can have some kind of a loose structure. But if you just allow people and give them ration cards and identity cards simply without any accounting, this is going to be a disaster. 
this will lead to all kinds of problems in future. You cannot run a nation without knowing who is in this country. If somebody wants to come, come into this nation, they must come through the front row, door, they must ask for immigration and come through the front door, we must have a system for that. We must have a system for that. How to… how can people knock on the country's door and come inside? Not slip in from wherever they want and be wherever they want, that's not going to work. For nobody it's going to work, we have to take steps on that. It can work for a few politicians. Unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, nation's interests are being sacrificed for personal ambitions. That is there in this country, what to do? But it still is a very conflicting um, thing because… See, if you want to be really inclusive, we can make the two countries into one <laughs> Yes, we can make uh, Bangladesh into a union territory and make it a part of this country, then everybody can go across, like you come from Pondicherry or anywhere else, like that you can go where you want. Are you ready for that? If you're ready for that, I, I think India is ready for that. <laughs> if you talk about inclusiveness, that's a way to include, isn't it? Not slipping into my house from the back door and saying, include me, it's not going to work <laughs> Okay, now we'll move to your favorite topic. What is that? <laughs> I didn't know you figured out all those things <laughs> Okay, now, now we move to Shiva. Oh. So, so, uh, so Shiva is what I got from reading about it and doing my practices and spending time with you. Shiva is not somebody looking, like sitting up there and looking at all of us. Shiva is a dimension. It is, it is what they say in science, a black hole where nothingness seems to be the origin of universe, where everything seems to be coming out of nothingness and being swallowed into nothingness. That very nothingness is Shiva. So anybody who accesses that dimension, if you access that, you become Shiva. If I tap into that, I can become Shiva. But, <laughs> but, but, okay, tell me that, that so Adi Yogi, the very first yogi was somebody who, who, had access, who has access to that dimension. So why is it that you are obsessed with Adi Yogi? Isn't it like being, uh, making it about the <laughs> container and not the contained? Sadhguru, isn't it like that? Uh, like you only talk about Adi Yogi. It's like Adi Yogi is the container. Till now I have not said a word about him. You brought him. <laughs> no, but you… You've made the sculpture of Adi Yogi and you… Yeah, it's only one and a half years old, but you, you're not checking what I was doing this thirty-six years. Let's come to that, that's fine. See, about Adi Yogi is not an obsession or the Adi Yogi is a plan. I should not… Mumbai is not… No, reveal it, reveal it. <laughs> Mumbai is not the best place to reveal it, but now that you so are So judgmental. Let's go <laughs> That's her next movie, she's promoting it Everybody must watch this mantle and manikarnika, everything, okay? I'm promoting it so that… So, you talked about nothing. We must understand this nothing. 
English language has certain limitations on these aspects, but we can… because we are speaking that language, we can manipulate it a little bit. If you want to understand nothing, you must put a hyphen between no and thing. It's not a thing. That doesn't mean it does not exist. This would have been a ridiculous statement for the Western minds. I'm saying Western minds because all of us are Western educated. Maybe we're living in India, we've born in India, grown up in India, but we are all Western educated. For a Western mind, this would be a ridiculous idea of a couple of decades or decades or maybe three decades ago it would have been so. But now science is talking about no things. That means non-physical dimension of existence, something that is not a thing but still a powerful force. When I say something that's not a thing, we are not talking about nuclear energy, we are not talking about, uh, you know, uh, electrical energy or a magnetism or anything. Simply nothingness is tremendously powerful. Today they're calling it, uh, you know, black existence or dark existence or dark power or many things are being used. So essentially you're talking about a dimension which is the source of something. Now this is something, this is something, everything here is something. But this has come from all that we call as nothing because it's not a physical form. A physical form in essence means a certain defined boundary. You call this a physical body because this is a defined boundary. If there is no defined boundary, this cannot be physical. So when we said yoga, this union that your inclusiveness you're poking at me <laughs> is essentially that you transcended your physical nature, so you are not a something anymore. Once you are not a something, there is no defined boundary for you. Once there is no defined boundary for you, union is the only way you can exist, there is no other way to exist. This is not just a concept, this is a living experience, this is the reality of the cosmos that if you look up in the sky, even a little child looks up in the sky, you will count stars. Maybe there are millions and billions of stars out there, but still all the stars put together, they do not occupy even one percent of the space out there, isn't it? But nobody pays attention to that space, that is nothing. So this ninety-nine percent or more, 99.9% is vast nothingness in this few specks of something. But your attention is only there simply because your visual apparatus are made like that. You are not able to grasp what is not there. You only see whatever stops light in the sense you are able to see this hand simply because it's stopping light and reflecting. So your ability to see is always limited to whatever stops light. See right now we are sitting here. Our microphone, our light, everything is important but the most important thing is the air that we are breathing for our existence right now. But we cannot see it. Does it mean to say we can do without it? So that which you cannot see, that which you cannot touch, that which you cannot perceive through five sense organs, that is called a no-thing or a nothing. That's called shiva. Shiva means that which is not. Now, if somebody begins to experience that as a living experience, we refer to him also as Shiva. But somebody who's not experienced it, we refer to him also. Half the people in this country at one time were named after Shiva. That is all the men, I'm saying. 
ladies were shiva you know shivangi shiva this shiva that or parvati gauri this one that one why this was so is constant reminder that you need to look beyond what is there in front of you this physical form of being a man or a woman or this person i like this person i don't like beyond this when i call him shiva now i cannot see say i like him or dislike him when when your name is shiva you claimed already your shiva when your name is shiva when i call you shiva i cannot call shiva angrily i cannot do something it's a kind of a control over yourself that you cannot abuse somebody you cannot say hey shiva you are this and that you can only say shiva <laughs> so we created a culture like this where constant reminder constant reminder wherever you look we even called our dog shiva yes we never thought it's an insult because he's as much life as you are we called if you see a tree we say shiva if you see a rock we say shiva if you see a bird we say shiva simply because the source of all that exists here as physical stuff essentially comes from that which is not a thing or no thing or shiva so this is why this talk about third eye and people think their forehead is going to crack and something is going to pop out <laughs> nothing like that these two eyes can show you only that which stops light the day you start seeing things which do not stop light then we say you have one more eye going you have an inner eye which is able to see something that these two eyes cannot see so third eye does not mean forehead cracking up and you becoming some kind of a freako this just that means your clarity has opened up that you are able to see beyond the limitations of senses so all the enlightened people who've been how many did you meet like i've heard about <laughs> many like you know say krishna or mohammed or um, or ram or christ buddha you know all the enlightened people who've been on this planet there is some sort of mention of their birth or death but when it comes to shiva uh, like you say he and i've read that he was self created and um, and i often ask you this question that um, that did he like disappear into thin air and apparently something like that happened uh, he couldn't even have biological children with any of the women he was married to uh, also he uh, he at least you can't blame him for the population <laughs> sadguru i'm coming to something very important there is a theory i thought population was very important no 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 too. there is a theory that shiva is alien say <laughs> yeah till now you've been talking about inclusiveness and suddenly you call somebody an alien no, no sadguru there is a theory I, i must tell you this every time i enter united states the at the immigration i end up standing in that line which says uh, resident alien <laughs> i look around and see i am the only one who fits the description <laughs> so go l- let me finish this question so there is this theory there is this theory that ev- let you go huh? <laughs> no that everything that humans encounter whether it's an idea it's a thought it's anything anything that they encounter it's been it's been transmitted into them through an outer space a, 
an outer being. My favorite director, Christopher Nolan, made this film, Interstellar, which is one of my favorite films, where they are constantly referring to certain beings as they. They are communicating, they are talking to us, they are doing this, but they never really clarified who they were. Like, were they aliens, were they gods, who they were? And, uh, and, and Sadhguru, like, this, this I, th I felt it in, like, when, when any creative idea comes to me, it has absolutely no intellectual grounds where I can go back and track it down. It's literally like a mail dropped in my head. This it is, seems like it's from this, an outside this space. Is not a confession. I know it's a confession, but, but, but Sadhguru, is it that we are being operated by an external, like sort of outside beings? Is, is it that? Well, uh, people who have no faith in human intelligence are looking up that intelligence will come from somewhere else. What we need to understand is, see, there are certain things which are very significant things in this country which unfortunately this present generation has completely forgotten or very few people are reminded and the rest of the world, some places they recognize, rest of the places it's not there. What the thing is just this, here we consider things like this. For example, in yoga, we call your spine the center of the universe, we call it Merudhanda. That means it's the axis of the universe. What is a universe? Please understand this. Today scientists are admitting it is an endless universe. Forever they said, if you travel this many million light years, you will reach the end of the universe. But now they're admitting it's an endless universe. Forever we've been saying it's an ever-expanding universe. So we said, your spine is the axis of the universe. That sounds ridiculous. Even without putting any load, most people's backs are hurting badly. <laughs> they can't even <laughs> walk or run or do anything. If this becomes the axis of the universe, what will happen? Why we are saying this is, see, you know there is a universe or you think there is a universe only by your experience, isn't it so? If you did not experience, if you did not… if you could not see this, if you could not see like this and feel like this, you wouldn't know there is a universe. Only because of your experience there is a universe. And the center where your experience is being transmitted is through your spine. If we cut a few wires in your spine, you will have no experience even of the body, forget about the universe. So because your… Your ability to experience the universe is rooted and centered in your spine. We are calling your… your spine as the axis of the universe. Suppose this hall, see now we know the boundaries of this hall. Now we can debate whether this is the center of this hall or that is the center of this hall. Suppose there are no boundaries to this hall, how would you decide which is the center of this hall? Where you are is the center of the hall, isn't it? From this basis, we developed a whole possibility for a human being, how not just to believe these things but to make it into your living experience. It is from this the word yoga came, that the inclusiveness happens not because I tell you, oh, I love you, you love me and all this stuff. Inclusiveness happens simply because you obliterate the boundaries of your individuality. Not because I love you, you love me, I hug you, you hug me, so because we are inclusive, no. All that will last for some time, tomorrow if they do something that you don't like, it'll be finished. But you obliterate the boundaries of your individual nature, including your body, that you know how to sit here without being identified 
with the boundaries of who you are. Your physical structure, your mental structure, your emotional structure has a boundary. It may be large or small. No, I'm not talking about the body being large. It may be large or small but it has a boundary. But there are dimensions which have no boundary. What doesn't have a boundary is non-physical in nature. So our focus has always been on that dimension which is non-physical. That is why Shiva became the most important thing because Shiva means that which is not, that which is non-physical. Now is he the, the yogi that we are talking about? Is he a, a human being? Is he… did he come from somewhere else? There are many things uh, <laughs> This audience need to be primed for this because it's a long story you're asking. I'm trying to encapsulate it in two minutes, that's dangerous because it looks silly. Let me… there is a book, uh, Arundhati is here, uh, you know, we spoke together and she kind of uh, put it together and there's a book on uh, Adiyogi uh, which is going into these aspects but let me put it across. See, there are things. As you said, there is no parentage. When you talk about Shiva, there is no parentage, there's no place of birth, there's nobody saw him as a young boy to grow up. All the time when we saw him, he was about the same age and we don't know where he died, such a significant human being even in those times, if he died somewhere, they must have… they should have built a temple, they should have built a, some kind of a monument for him, nothing like that happened. So there is no birth, there is no death, there is no parentage, there is no siblings, there is no anything to prove that he was here. Does it mean to say we can assume he came from somewhere? Not necessarily, but in many of the… if you look at the lore, it's very common to refer to Shiva as Yakshaswarupa. This means, Yakshas means always those… those kind of beings which are not human but who supposed to have existed in the natural env environment in this planet, in the forest and other things. Whatever we were referring to, some kind of beings or creatures or whatever you want to call them, who are not human in nature. So many, many times in the lore, you will see any number of songs and other things talking about Shiva as a Yakshaswarupa. So there are many things which point but there is no specific proof that he came from elsewhere. One thing is the level of intelligence in terms of his mathematics, his music and uh, his geometry, what he thought in terms of that. When you look at it, the times that we are referring to, see, uh, in the yogic culture, let me admit this in front of this uh, crowd because, oh my god, there are cameras. Uh, in the yogic lore, it is estimated Shiva or Adiyogi existed as a person, he walked this land somewhere between sixty to seventy-five thousand years ago. When I sp first spoke this, all the more sensible people around me who are not as naive as me, they're wiser people, younger people. They said, Sadhguru, if you say seventy-five thousand, they will blast you. The only archaeological proof that is there that Adiyogi or Shiva existed is about twelve thousand six hundred years. You should say twelve thousand six hundred or thirteen thousand or fourteen thousand. I said, okay, fifteen thousand <laughs> But actually in the yogic lore, there is a clear aspect of… they're talking about celestial arrangements. 
These celestial arrangements, if you go by the modern astronomy, they existed only somewhere between sixty to eighty thousand years in that span. There is no two ways about it, the things that he is talking about. And uh, now, of uh, the Cambay, what's, the, what's it called? In, uh, what is the Indian name for that, I'm sorry? Kumbhat, oh, is it? Yeah. Of the Gulf of Kumbhat, now they've done explorations, they actually went there to clean up the plastic. But then they found a city which is five square miles and now international archaeologists from… especially from Germany and France, they have dated this according to carbon dating uh, process that it is a minimum of thirty-two thousand years. Thirty-two thousand years ago, nowhere on this planet did a city exist. Not just a city did not exist, the idea of a city did not exist. But they had a city which is five square miles in size, properly orderly way of doing things. It's been buried, they're estimating it was… it has gone underwater for about nine thousand years. And similarly, of course, everybody has heard about Dwaraka. There are… there are excavations which unfortunately now is the line of control between India and Pakistan, you can't touch it. If you dig, <laughs> something else will happen, you'll hit the mines <laughs> So, there is enough proof today, archaeological proof to say, over thirty thousand years ago, there was a civilized society here. Maybe not across the country, but in pockets it's existed. So, this dating goes back like this, so I'm just saying over fifteen thousand years so that when I travel west also I look sensible. Okay, fifteen thousand, all right. Seventy-five thousand, they'll resist because their idea of the world is only three thousand years old. They said everything happened in six days and it's only three thousand years old. Anything beyond three… three thousand years is not scientific. This has been the approach, unfortunately. Now slowly they're correcting themselves without looking stupid. But it's utterly stupid. For all these centuries you insisted it's only three thousand years, now you're slowly extending it because science comes and says something else. You will watch it in the next fifty years, science will come and say… modern science will come and say many things which we have been talking for thousands of years. So, Sadhguru, Einstein said that uh, time doesn't exist but we seem to… somehow we are stuck in it. And, and you say that space took a, a cyclic turn and that's how the… the we're we are stuck in time. Uh, is it only our bodies or our mind? What… what I mean, how, how is it exactly See, like… right now everybody's sitting here. Let's say we will make them sit here for next ten days just like this. Will they sit? No. Let's say we make them sit here for next three hours. Well, the body will keep time. If you forget also, suppose they're very interested in what we are saying and uh, they forgot time mentally, the bladder will keep time. <laughs> it will tell you when it's three hours for sure, isn't it? Your stomach will keep time. It will tell you when you're hungry and when it's time. So once you're… once you're embodied as a physical being, time is an essential factor of your life. And you know in your experience, time is a relative experience, but in your body it is not so. It is keeping time all the time because body is just a product of this planet and it keeps time. Right now, what is your idea of time? Planet spins like this, it's one day. 
moon goes around, that's one month, planet goes around the sun, that's one year. All our ideas of time is only because of the cyclical movement of physical nature. This is the nature of physicality. Physicality is always happening in cyclical movements. Whether it's an atom or the cosmos, everything is in cyclical movements. Without this cyclical movement, there is no physical existence. This is what we refer to in the yogic culture as samsara. Samsara means something that is going in cyclical movement. That means it is traversing the same path again and again, but makes you believe it is new all the time. So if you have a very short memory, you will see every time it comes you experience it as new and you're excited about it. But if you have a very long vision of things, then you see the same thing is happening. The moment you see the same thing is happening, you will want to change it, isn't it? It is from this context the idea of mukti or liberation comes up because you see that you're stuck in the cycles of samsara, so the same thing is going round. Why is this happening? Because of our identity with, identity with physical nature, because we are so identified with the physical self that we are, now everything that we do also goes in cycles. Cycles means we are going round and round. You know in English the term, if I say you're going round and round, it means you're not getting anywhere. So the word samsara has been misinterpreted and gone to into use in variety of ways. For example, in Tamil, if you say samsara, it means wife. <laughs> she keeps you going round and round. <laughs> I don't know how that usage came, but uh, today in Tamil language, if somebody says uh, my samsaram, you were supposed to understand it's his wife, not his cyclical nature. <laughs> okay, Sadhguru, now my question is that, do you think, like, like you said, in the scheme of thing and like in going round and round in this, in this cosmos, be, like somebody like me, I sometimes feel that the things that I want to do and the things that I feel for, is, is it pompous us, for, of us to, to think that we can do something for others or, or uh, maybe, you know, like the spirit of… Y y if you want to do something for others, please be pompous, as pompous as you want, please do something because a lot needs to be done in this country. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, fine. Okay, so my, my uh, almost second last question. That's, that's good, isn't it? I'm telling you to be pompous. Okay, fine. I love being pompous anyway. <laughs> so, so, Sadhguru, um, I, I personally have um, read a lot of books about spirituality and I've been following Swami Vivekananda from the age of 17 and I never really felt the need of a guru. Um, until I was faced with mortality, I lost a friend at the age of 25 and, um, and since then I, I just feel that everything that I've done in my life or every situation I've been into and I've walked into, I've always held my head very high and I've always been prepared for it, I mean as much I could. Um, and I just, I can't wrap my head around it and when I read your book, I didn't instantly feel that I would be seeing this day and I felt okay fine I've read Buddha I've read like you know you're one of those enlightened people yeah sure so <laughs> no I wasn't impressed let me tell you but then I read <laughs> but then I read um, more than a life and there is the mention of this yogi uh, Swami Nirmalananda who waited for you all his life and um, and and apparently you were supposed to guide him to Mahasamadhi. Now Mahasamadhi is something that I've only heard of in stories and in myths and all of that. Like where you 
willingly walk out of your body because you think that's the best thing to do at that point of time. Um, now that seems too fantastic. And um, I mean, looking at how our societies at euthanasia has been being legal now and the kind of resistance, like when your wife heard about the process, she showed extreme desire to adapt to that and she acquired Mahasamadhi in the middle of like thousands of people. It's written elaborately uh, in the book and Nirmalananda was opposed by the, the government. You know, he was not allowed to be able to take not Mahasamadhi. The liberals. Yeah, because apparently they were like, you, you can't take Mahasamadhi. And so, so, I mean, don't you think like we as people, we have stopped to discuss death because shouldn't we be prepared for that day? And when I got to know that you uh, can, I mean, I mean, since then I realized maybe you can help me if someday, I'm not saying now, but someday. <laughs> but when the time comes, don't you think I should be ready for it? I should be dressed like this and be like, hey, come, let's go. What do you mean come? Who, who has to come with you? Like whoever, <laughs> whoever comes at that point of time. <laughs> so... Uh, why, why is it pushed under the carpet? Why don't we talk about death? It's not under the carpet, it's just that. That's why I said, all of us, we may call ourselves Indian, but our minds largely have become Western because our education is like that and we... You, you just… You, you do one thing in Mumbai, you go and just look at people below their knees. You will see at least forty-five percent of the people are wearing only blue denims, okay? I'm not against it. I lived in it at one time for almost seven years, eight years. I wore nothing else but blue denims. It was like a philosophy, not just a clothing. So today that number has increased in a big way. It's American working… workman's clothes. It's spread around the world. And because workmen wore clothes which were… because of work, it wore out, you know. Our pants would wear out riding motorcycles, it would wear out, we would put a leather patch and this and that. But now people are buying pants which are torn, all right? <laughs> Paying more for the tear, you also… <laughs> so, <laughs> why I'm saying this is, because of this… this imposition is not small. It's taken a huge footprint in everybody's mind. In this culture, we talked about samadhi. It's a very commonly used word, but unfortunately people think samadhi means uh, uh, it's a gravestone. No, samadhi means sama and di. Sama means equanimous, di means buddhi. If your buddhi or your intellect becomes equanimous, when we say equanimity, we need to understand this. The reason why you're using your intellect so extensively is because you've been tra trained to discriminate between this and this, between everything and everything. And we create… intellect is the thing which creates division between everything. For us to function physically in this world, I must know here which is me and which is you. I must know here what is a chair and what is a floor. Otherwise, I won't know how to operate. So, for practical purposes life, essentially for our survival, intellect is of paramount importance, no question about that. But this discriminatory dimension, if I ask you, I, I will leave her alone, okay? I will ask you, suppose there is a choice between having a sharp intellect and a dull or blunt intellect, what is your choice? You must choose, I'm going to bless you right now. Sharp. 
So essentially, intellect is a cutting instrument. It's a knife. The sharper it is, the better it is. It cuts everything. Why is cutting important? See, what is the nature of science that we learn today? If you went to a biology class, for sure, if you did not cut a frog or a cockroach, at least a flower you opened up. If you open up this flower, you will understand so many things about the structure of the flower, how it functions, everything, but you will not experience the flower because by the time you're done with it, it's finished. So if I want to know you, I think I must dissect you. I've come with my scalpel. You think by dissecting you, I will know you? By including you, I will know you. By embracing you, I may know you. But by dissecting you, I will not know you, isn't it? So when, in, when you… the only instrument you have is a knife and with that you try to do everything, I must tell you this. That was a time when I crisscrossed India on my motorcycle. It seems… Uh, where is uh, uh, Boman Irani, is he here? They're bringing back Java once again into the country, I believe. Well, I rode probably the SD motorcycles like nobody. I was doing around fifty-five to sixty thousand kilometers every calendar year, just riding across the country without purpose. <laughs> Uh, so at that time I was… I don't know whether I was in Madhya Pradesh or I was in UP, the whole night I've been riding. Early morning I come to a place and uh, I want to have some tea and rest for some time. Then, uh, you know, I always fix my motorcycle on the street by myself, but the… I thought I saw a garage. It was named uh, handwritten Mubarak Mechanical Works. I looked at Mubarak Mechanical Works and whole night I've been riding, I didn't want to dirty my hands now. It was a simple thing, I had to just tighten the chain, just take off one link and tighten the chain, that's all I had to do. I thought this guy can do it. So this young, uh, very enthusiastic mechanic came out and I said, uh, why don't you just take off one link and tighten my motorcycle chain. Then he came out, then I saw the only two tools that he had in his hand was a chisel and a hammer. Then I said, wait. Then I walked into his little shack of a mechanic shop and looked inside, there was no other tools, only one hammer and one chisel, with this he does everything. <laughs> Once he works on your machine, nobody else can work on it anymore, it's finished <laughs> I said, okay, Mubarak, <laughs> you don't touch my motorcycle like this. So right now, a whole humanity has become like this. The only in instrument they have is a knife. With this knife they cut, it's an efficient tool for cutting. Now you want to stitch your clothes, you stitch with a knife. This is what has happened to the denims <laughs> If you do everything with a knife, everything will be in tatters and it's horrible, isn't it? That's all that's happening to us. We are trying to handle everything with one dimension of intelligence that we call as intellect. There are other dimensions of intelligence within us which is completely unexplored. So samadhi means to get your intellect to a state of equanimity so that it does not interfere in your perception of what really is the nature of existence. Right now, the only thing that's interfering in your life is your thought process, isn't it so? If I ask you to sit and meditate right now, you think somebody next to you is going to poke you? No, they are fine. It's your own mind, isn't it? People say they're depressed, people say they're agitated, somebody is manic, somebody is angry, somebody is miserable. No, 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 all this is not happening. The only thing that's happening is 
your intelligence is turned against you, you're not getting it. You think you're suffering because of something, no. Your intelligence is turned against you and nothing else. You have a knife and you don't know how to handle it. If you have a knife and you don't know how to handle it, you'll cut yourself up. Do you need any assistance from outside to make yourself miserable? You're very efficient, aren't you? <laughs> if you're alone and you're miserable, obviously you're in bad company. <laughs> so this is only because, see we don't give a knife to a child's hand, not because knife is dangerous, simply because a child's hand is not steady. He could hurt himself or hurt somebody. That's what… that's what the whole humanity is doing and they're evolving philosophies after philosophies and talking about life endlessly with one instrument of intelligence called intellect. This is the buddhi. Samadhi means you brought it to an equanimity where it doesn't interfere with your perception of life. So we identify eight dimensions of samadhi. The first four are called savitharka, that means they have qualities of experience. There are different dimensions of experience. The next four are called nirvitharka, or there is no experience as such, but there is a certain different dimension of awareness. In this maha samadhi is considered the highest because your equanimity got to such a place where there is no distinction between… there is absolutely no identification between what is you and what is your body. Because what you call as my body is a piece of this planet that you gathered, isn't it? Either you realize that today or one day when they bury you, you will get the point anyway. <laughs> you get it from me or you get it from the maggots, it's up to you. Mystic or maggots is your choice. But you will get it one day. If you get it today, if you genuinely understand this whole thing that I think is myself is what I have gathered from this planet and put it here like this. What I have in the form of my intellect, every little bit of data is something that you gathered from outside, isn't it? What you gather from outside can be yours, cannot be you. Now there are instances, people, ministers and various other politicians, if you give them a government uh, accommodation, after their term is over, they won't vacate. <laughs> but there are many of them. See, we only hear about those who don't vacate. But there are many of them, when their term is over, very gracefully they will vacate. You don't… they're not news, unfortunately. Actually, we must publish news about them. But nobody talks about all those people who exit their residences quietly without any fuss. We only print news about those idiots who refuse to vacate a government accommodation that's given to them because of the work they were doing. Once the work is over, you must go, isn't it? In a way, this is also… the house that you live in was built from the earth that you dig up. This also is just the same. This is your residence, you built it up. When it's time, if you can gracefully exit without anybody pushing you out, when I say anybody, nobody need to kill you, no, no disease need to come, no organism need to invade your body. By yourself you gracefully exited because you understand it's time for you. Then we say this is maha samadhi, that means absolute equanimity has come to you. This is not new in this country, in every generation we have seen hundreds of people. We have talked about Nirmalananda, I must tell you about Nirmalananda. Like uh, I was probably just around twenty or twenty-one years of age, I'm living wild, I largely 
either I am on a motorcycle or I am in the jungle, sleeping in… upon trees and existing myself, surviving in the jungle all by myself. It's one of those days where about… I have been in the Biligirangan… Biligirangan Betta, which is a very fantastic forest, you must see that, it's full of wildlife. I am staying in the jungle for about four days and uh, it's rainy season. I usually don't have any arrangement, you know, all I have is motorcycle and gas, that's it. So I survive in the jungle, I know how to survive, but being rainy season, I've become very hungry, almost for nearly thirty-two hours I've not eaten anything. And I'm head to toe in mud because it's raining, wherever I sit down and get up, I become all mud. Then uh, I came up the hill on my motorcycle, there were no restaurants, there were no nothing at that time in that place, there was just one temple and the temple was closed, there was no food anywhere. Then I saw this little ashram, four-acre ashram. Then I rode in. Those are times, even in college, I never got off the motorcycle. Even to first floor, I went on my motorcycle, <laughs> okay. In our house, going into the house, coming out of the house, we always went on the motorcycle and come out, came out on the motorcycle, steps and everything. So I rode up and there were about six, seven steps to go to his uh, little hermitage that was there. I rode up that. And I'm explaining this simply to make you understand how wacky the mind is. Always our motorcycle will never have a stand, okay? It'll not have a stand, it'll not have a battery, it'll not have many things which we think is extra weight. We've made it minimal. So I go and park the motorcycle leaning on his cottage like this and I get down and I'm wearing ankle-length boots full of mud from head to toe. I take off my helmet and uh, look at him. He just looks at me like this and laughs and laughs and tears start coming in his eyes. I said, what's wrong with the old man, you know? He's like in his seventies, I'm twenty-one or so. Then I said, I need to eat, I'm extremely hungry, I was ready to eat him <laughs> Then he… I, he did something that I could never do. Never in my life I had bowed down to anybody, forget about that, I have never been to your temple. I have not done this even in front of God. My mother says, hold it like this, no, I'll stand like this. <laughs> I won't do this, I'm uh, confirmed whatever <laughs> So this man comes and falls at my feet and my muddy boots, he holds it in his hands and weeps. I just kind of, you know, it was just shook me because this is a seventy-year-old man. Then I said, no, wh what are you doing? I just need to eat, I don't need this. <laughs> then he took me inside and he tried to unlace my boots. I said, don't do that and I put my boots outside and went inside and sat. He baked my, some bread, he had nothing else. He, he bakes his own bread, he baked bread and he gave me a jar of honey. So I ate it up and then we started talking. Then whenever I went that way, because I saw that he had nothing much at all, I would take him a bunch of bananas or some apples or whatever fruits that was there and he always gave me, a, gave me a can of honey to carry back. So this became a quiet… because he was not speaking. He was for fourteen years on silence, so he will only write. So I will speak and he will write, it became a relationship over a number of years. Then this is uh, ninety-six, 
It was in, a big controversy where, yes, where, yes, where that's what I'm saying. In it was 96, everywhere on the TV where he was, he, all his life he worked towards wanting to get Mahasamadhi and when he found you and you told him the techniques and when he was about to get there, apparently the government yes. got involved and in like, you cannot do that. In 1996, he announced, I'm 74 years of age right now, I don't want to die as a rogi, I want to die as a yogi. So when the Uttarayana comes, that is after this winter solstice happens, I will leave my body. He announced in the month of April or May, I'm not and very sure And media got to know. <laughs> no, media later, media came. Then at that time I was there and he told me this and we discussed a few things and uh, my wife Vijay and my daughter were sitting there. And we went into all kinds of details which we never speak about. So when this was over, he was all very emotional about it and then we were driving back. Then I saw my wife was weeping. I said, why? She said, I also want to live like that. Then I was joking with her, okay, when are you going to leave? <laughs> but then she said, no, I'm very serious. I want, to, I want to go like him. What he was saying was fantastic and what you were explaining to him, that's how I want to live. I said, why do you want to leave? Because twelve years of marriage, we've been traveling, traveling, traveling. People have been absolutely wonderful to us everywhere, but there is no home as such, we are always on the move. So just then, we were building a small place to live. I said, just now you're getting a home after twelve years and the girl was only seven years of age. I said, why now? She said, right now, everything within me is wonderful. Everything around me is just the way I want it. This is the time I want to leave. I don't want to leave when things are wrong. I don't want to leave when I'm not well or something is not well. I just thought because she was… she was not… she was… she was intense. Either she is at the peak of joy or at the dumps, she doesn't know in between. She would hit the peak or she would go down, but she never knew the in between. And she is not a great practitioner of yoga or something. She was keeping her normal practice but nothing much. Only thing is she was intense person. There was no moment of dullness with her, she was always intense. So she took up the sadhana so intensely from the month of August it started and she started announcing to everybody in the month of February, I will leave. I said, why are you talking about this rubbish? People will make a joke out of you. She said, no, I'm leaving in February. And she started telling the girl, I said, please don't disturb the girl, what will she think, seven-year-old girl? But she brought the girl to that level of understanding. The girl's birthday is in March, this is in January. Then we went to see Nirmalananda for the last time. He wrote a letter to me saying that this is the last letter I'm… He was writing every day hundred letters to people all over the world. That's his only communication. So he wrote one letter to me saying this is my last letter and so we went to see him. He left on January 8th or… 8th or 10th, I don't remember. But Sadhguru, there was a lot of resistance for that. When he said he will he leave on this date, the so-called rationalists got the… moved the court… Imagine the very day <laughs> which you're preparing for so many years. <laughs> the rationalists moved the court and posted police in the ashram. This man, I want to tell you how he lived. He has a small Ganapati temple. If he wants to do puja, he will wait for the flowers to fall down from the tree, he will not pluck, he doesn't want to hurt the tree. Only if the flowers fall down, he will take that and worship, otherwise he will not do that worship, some leaf he will take and offer to the God that he believes in. This is the kind of man, they put police there. So when I went there, end of December, 
with a group of our people, you know, about 100, 200 people, we went there to see him because we knew it's the last uh, part of his life. He was still fit and well. He just cried. He said, see, they put police, two constables were sitting there. He said, they put police to watch me. I said, you don't worry, what's your problem? They're just two people sitting there. You don't look at their uniform, leave them alone. You just focus on what you have to do. But he was deeply disturbed. He said, how can they put police watching me? Am I a thief? Why are they putting police on me? I mean, the very thing he should be respected for. And these kind of… I, <laughs> See, I mean, in this culture, this. such a man would be worshipped. But unfortunately, in today's India, police were but, put… But Sadhguru, the very fact that he was healthy, why, why one has to drag to their death, death is what I don't understand. Like euthanasia, these people, they will… like the ones who were fighting for it to uh, not be passed, they will even snatch your, uh, you know, food. But they definitely have no love for somebody's life, but they're scared of death. See, that is for sure. The culture has become in such a way that we are in a denial of death. But you must understand this, the, the only reason why somebody turns spiritually is when they realize they are mortal. If you were immortal, spiritual process would be meaningless. By thinking about God, you will not become spiritu spiritual, you will become fanciful, you will become unrealistic. You think there are shortcuts to life by believing in God. But the moment you see that you are mortal, then you naturally want to know what is beyond this body, what is the nature of my existence. These questions are very natural when you understand that you're mortal. So in this culture, we have never hidden mortality. Always death happened in open, you know. When somebody is dying in your house, they'll keep him outside so that everybody can see how he dies. So this is a thing that people will watch, whether he dies gracefully, whether he vacates his residence gracefully or he needs to be pushed out. This was very, very important. Unfortunately, we've lost that. We need to understand this, whatever we may be doing, doesn't matter what you're doing, you're making movies, I do something else, somebody runs a state, it doesn't matter what we're doing, we are mortal. This is the fundamental reality of our existence. If we forget this one thing, only by forgetting this one thing, we start doing idiotic things on this planet. We have done all these idiotic things simply because today we have to talk about saving rivers, saving mountains, nonsense. This is all a utter nonsense to me, saving a river, saving the forest. This is simply because we think we are immortal. We may not be actually thinking so, but we are not conscious of our mortality. If we understood that our stay here is just a a brief amount of time, we're just beaten carriers from previous generation to the next generation. We are temporary occupants of this planet. If this awareness was there within us every day of our life, we would live completely differently. It's very, very important to be conscious of one's mortality. So one, one good thing is that Nimlananda finally acquired Mahasamadhi and so did your wife, which is the saving grace of the whole episode. Um, okay, so my last question is, Sadhguru, that uh, about our youth, uh, apparently the statistics say that every one hour, actually less than an hour, a uh, young person below 25 is committing suicide. Uh, why is that? I mean, there's a time to die and you can utilize Mahasamadhi for that, but why die before 25? Suicide is not uh, a pleasant thing. Not at all a pleasant thing because for a human being to make… See, when somebody dies, commits suicide, we're just thinking, okay, he committed suicide. It's not like that. You must look at what psychologically that person goes through to come to the decision. It's the most horrible part of one's life where somewhere they feel so trapped 
either by physical situations, financial situations or emotional situations, so absolutely trapped when there is no other way, this is when they take that kind of violent exit which you call a suicide. And uh, if we… if someone tries to kill somebody, that somebody has some defense. They can fight, they can run, they can protect themselves. Some resistance is possible. But when you start hurting this one, this is the most helpless life. And it is the worst kind of torture that you can do is to torture this one because this is an absolutely helpless life with yourself, isn't it? Somebody else has some defenses. So suicide need not be seen in terms of statistics, one hour they're dying, even if one person commits suicide, it's a human concern. It must be a concern for the whole humanity. Why is this happening? You must understand in this country, in 2017, 7,600 children below 15 years of age have committed suicide. Below 15 years of age, when they must be bursting with life and wanting to live. Below 15 years of age, if they want to commit suicide, what is it? We are somewhere driving ourselves to a certain desperation. One big cause for all this is education system. Unfortunately, it's the schooling system which is killing people. Because if you get ninety-eight, you're no good, you know? People will ask you, where is the other two percent? <laughs> so, apart from this, there are various other things, economic things are there, emotional things are there, various kinds of things for a human being. Essentially, simply because there is no clarity about life in some way. See, youth means it's life in making. Youth, the most significant aspect of youth is they're full of energy. It's a huge amount of energy. When I say energy, after all our life is a combination of a certain amount of energy and a certain amount of time, isn't it? Time is ticking away for all of us at the same pace. It's going away. If you sit here, it goes away. If you stand, it goes away. If you run, it goes away. If you don't do anything, it goes away. If you sleep also, it goes away. Time is rolling for all of us. It's only energy we can manage. If you organize our energies in a certain way, what somebody does in hundred years, you could do in ten years. It is just organization of one's energies. So youth means an exuberant energy. But most of the time, the problem with the youth is they don't have the necessary clarity nor balance. If only, if you could bring ten percent more clarity and ten percent more balance in their life than the way they are right now, this energy would translate into something fantastic. Because if you… if individual genius has to unfold, the most important thing is there is balance and clarity. So, as a part of this, we are just about on the threshold of this. We are launching a campaign called Youth and Truth in the month of September. We are doing events across the country in various universities. More than that, the idea is to communicate to the youth of this nation and the world that there is a way to bring clarity to your life. You have energy. If you bring clarity and balance, you could be a wonderful life early on. Fantastic you can be. But if you have energy and you don't have the necessary ba balance and clarity, you could become a disaster right here, both for yourself and the world as such. So we will be a part of uh, doing this and we expect you and all your friends in the in the industry and in the media, please be a part of it because this is one thing we need to do because as a nation, we are talking about our demographic dividend. 
where fifty percent of our population is below thirty years of age, which is a unique situation. And it's a fantastic situation only if we give the necessary clarity and balance and competence to our youth. Otherwise, we can be a major disaster. Uh, such a large youthful population without necessary clarity, without competence, without balance, they could be the biggest disaster on the planet. But if we organize this well, we could be the greatest miracle in the world. So we are making this effort and I'm putting one full month of my time traveling across the country, speaking in various universities and causing a buzz about this among the youth, speaking a very youthful language. You'll see a very different I know, you can, I because know, I will uh, well, dress differently, speak differently, do everything differently with them yeah. because I'm very youthful. Yeah. So, so my, uh, my message to all the youth who are going to participate in, uh, in this, you can ask uh, Sadhguru all kind of questions, why uh, about monthly cycles, about sex, drugs, all the scandalous I questions they which… Know, they know all those things. No, they don't. <laughs> Sadhguru, they, they are being a victim of drug overdose. There are so many, uh, you know, drugs has become a big epidemic, uh, especially in schools and colleges. So, so guys, I, uh, I look forward to those conversations and ask exciting questions. Okay, this is so. being uh, pitched as uh, youth and truth, unplug with Sadhguru, ask whatever you want. Ask whatever Nothing you want. Nothing is a taboo. Yeah. So how much time do we have for questions? Please. Namaskaram Sadhguru, I would like to bow down with all my knowledge and all, all sorry, my ignorance. If you can hold the microphone, yeah. Okay. Uh, it's quite safe, you can hold it close to you. <laughs> Is this okay? Yeah. So, first of all, I'd like to bow down with all my knowledge and all my ignorance. Like, I can't tell you how much you mean to me. Okay. <laughs> so, my question is very simple. Uh, Whenever I go to more watch a movie, I'm given a place and I can see the screen in front of me, hear the voice coming from somewhere and I can understand where I am. But when it comes to my life, uh, I don't know where I see things, where I hear things. Every night when I go off to sleep, I don't know where I vanish, where I come back from. Uh, something within me, seeing me pass by, all that experiences that I have, I have in my life, I've been seeing it but I can't figure out where I am. It's, I, I can't understand what's happening. I, I can see everything, I can feel everything. Whenever my hands get burnt, I understand this feeling, but I don't understand where it happens. Whenever I do my practices, I see, I, I can't figure out where I am, Sadhguru. Matrix. <laughs> uh, you're in Matrix, <laughs> like no, no. all of us. <laughs> He said, uh, you're making bad movies. He's, he said that, not me. Because he said, when I sit in the movie, I know it's just a movie. No, no, you must get lost in the movie, you must think it's life for some time. That's when a <laughs> movie… He's making comments on you, not me. <laughs> so about you not knowing where you are, well, if you're thinking of where in terms of geography, nobody knows where they are in this cosmos. That is the beauty of this, a tiny little blob of a planet 
in this limitless cosmos is floating around and here we sit and talk all this stuff. Isn't it fantastic? Isn't it a miracle, huh? You and me sit here and talk all these things and we don't know where we are. If you don't know where you are, it's not a problem. It's a geographical issue and there's no issue about it, it's perfectly fine. But you should know what is the nature of your existence, this is very important. If you do not know what is the nature of your existence, you can never ever conduct yourself properly. You may be socially well conducted in a given society, but as a life you will never conduct yourself properly if you do not know the nature of your existence. This is what this entire culture invested in called realization or self-realization that you must first know the nature of this life, otherwise how will you conduct it? If you do not know the nature of what you're handling, how will you handle it well? How can you handle it well? So, uh, where you are, I don't want to give, a, give you a GPS location that works only on this planet. There's no CPS, cosmic positioning system doesn't exist yet, okay? <laughs> so, let's focus on knowing what is the nature of my existence, that'll sort out a whole lot of things. What time is it? You've taken the whole time, it's nine o'clock. <laughs> really? Okay, so that was long conversation. Hello, uh, my question is that we often tend to attract patterns in our life. The pattern can be good or bad. It can be abusive relationships, it can be successes, it can be failures. So how to break away from a negative pattern and attract a positive one? And uh, my second question is... Well, let's handle one at a time. <laughs> she's asking you. No, she's definitely not asking me. I have the same question in my life. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the last question we answer. Yes. So, when we say we have patterns, this is what we said in a certain way. There is a cyclical moment to everything. Our psychological and emotional processes also have become cyclical largely because of a very, a very strong attachment and involvement with the physical process. And physical process has to be cyclical, only then we exist. Without cyclical movement, there will be no physical existence. If you do you, uh, just on the side, if you want some entertainment, you want to know what is the yogic doomsday? What is the yogi? Yogic doomsday. Doomsday, yeah. <laughs> In yoga they calculated some 3200 years ago, 3200 years ago. They made a calculation and said, every, every year, this is a fact, every year the moon is moving away from the planet approximately about 32 millimeters. This is nearly one and a half inch. The, the orbit of the moon is going away from the planet. So they made a calculation and said, in twenty-eight thousand years, the moon will go so far that its impact on the planet will become minimal. When that happens, the human women will lose their menstrual cycles. Once that happens, human race will just peter out. You don't need a bomb, you don't need a flood, you don't need something our ability to reproduce will go away and slowly we quietly pit rot. Having said that, 
our physical existence here is only because of the cycles, various levels of cycles going on within us, isn't it? So if you attach your psychological process too much with your physicality, your psychological process also becomes cyclical and in this your karmic process also becomes cyclical, so your life starts running in cycles. You cannot avoid the cycles absolutely. The longest cycle that can run in your life is twelve and a quarter years because that is the cycle of the sun. The sun's cycles happen in twelve and a quarter years, moon cycle happen in twenty-eight days. Our physical existence is based in the moon cycles because unless our mother's bodies were in sync with the cycles of the moon, we wouldn't be born. So our physical existence is a short cycle. But other dimensions of our existence is a longer cycle. Let us say your life became a six-year cycle. Then you will be still fine, you will be productive, but once in a way you will freak on somebody, do this and that, but you will be still doing things successfully. Let us say your cycle became three years. Then you will see you will be still doing reasonably well, but volatile. One dimension of your life will be doing well, whatever you're competent with, the rest will be a mess, it'll be going like this. If it becomes, let's say, eighteen-month cycle, then you will see every day waking up in the morning is a problem. So many things will happen. Nobody need to bother you. Everybody leaves you alone, still you will torture yourself in many, many different ways. Let's say your cycle becomes nine months. Once you come below nine months cycle, then you are serious trouble. If it becomes three months, you are a… you must be in the asylum, you shouldn't be out. I'm sorry, the next movie. <laughs> if you get less than three months, then your physical existence itself is coming to an end, it will not go beyond that. How to watch these cycles? If you want to watch patterns, don't watch patterns in terms of what happens around you. You must learn to observe the system. There are clear-cut cycles happening. It's very important that you do the necessary sadhana to bring this cycle to the longest possible cycle within the human body is twelve and a quarter uh, year cycle. If you keep your cycle at that level, you will see you will be very well balanced, you will be successful with your life, you will handle your life effortlessly and no matter what happens around you, everything works for you simply because you're in sync, because you must understand your existence is not independent of the sources which create you. Here every moment of your life, everything that you do, the plant life, animal life and your life is all solar powered. Only if you're in sync with that fundamental energy, you will run with certain ease. Once as you start getting away from that cycle, you will see life becomes more and more of a struggle. If it drops below three years, I would say, you will not live a fruitful life, you will live a very fitful life. It's, it's like in spurts you may do well here and there, but generally life becomes struggle. Instead of trying to settle all these external situations which nobody can settle, okay? <laughs> you lived long enough to know you cannot settle all the situations in our lives, but if you settle this one thing, bring it to the right kind of cyclical process, you will see everything falls into place for you. Whatever may be happening, whatever the people's intention may be about you, still that will also work out for your well-being, simply because you're in sync with the fundamental nature of your existence here and that's very important. Thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you, Sadhguru. Thank you, Kangana. I think it was a session that was as engaging as we all thought it would be. And on behalf of Isha, we'd like to offer a small token of gratitude to Kangana. Neha? Thank you very much for being here.